Uh, we're starting a new series today called Foundations, and our church has been around since for almost four years now. And it's a good time for us to sort of take a step back and examine where we've come from, where we're going, and what are the aims and values of Savior Community Church? Because a lot of you were not here when we first started. Many of you are new, and many of you or are newer or interested or checking out our church. And we want to take the time to really, like anytime you're doing anything out of routine or discipline or habitually, you come to church, we've been coming and going, coming and going. Anytime there's routine in your life, you want to have self-examination. We need to examine ourselves personally, and we should examine ourselves corporately as a body, really seeing and letting the Word of God examine us. We think we're coming to the Word of God and examining it, but Hebrews 4 talks about how the Word of God will pierce our souls. It will examine, it will reveal the inner thoughts that we have. The Word of God is alive and active. And are we in tune with what God is calling us to do, personally and corporately? Because if there's anywhere, let's just say personally, where my heart is just like maybe two degrees off, it's just a tiny bit off, and I head in that trajectory for the rest of my life, for the next 10, 20 years, I might find myself in a place that I really don't want to be in. And the same thing goes for our church. We should let the Word of God examine us. We are under the authority of the Word of God. And what is it that God calls us to do? What direction is he calling us to go to? It's not a matter of like, oh, what we think we want or what gifts we have, but there are certain values and aims that scripture is calling us to, that God is calling us to, and we want to make sure we're in line with that. Are we growing in the right way? Because we may be growing, a lot of things has changed, we have a lot of new people, but are we going, growing in the right way? And what does that even look like? How do we measure like fruitfulness? How do we measure success? How do we measure faithfulness? Those are the type of questions we want to go through for the next seven weeks and really examine and make sure we're hitting the right target. Because maybe we're hitting a bullseye, but are we hitting the right target? We need to make sure we're not just ready, uh, ready, fire, and then aim, but really, really examine where are we aiming, and then we fire, wanting to make sure that we're in line with the Word of God. We're in tune with the Word of God. And so where are things that we, we are doing, what are things that we are doing well, and we want to continue growing that? And are there areas where we need to course correct according to God's Word? And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 today, in Matthew chapter 22, and again, as always, we don't want to just jump in. Let's give some context. The context here is that we're on Wednesday of Passion Week, which is the week that Jesus is crucified. He's entered the city of Jerusalem, and the crowds cheered for him because they thought, here's the guy that we've been praying for, waiting for. He's going to be the king, but he wasn't the king that they expected. They wanted him to be the king who would deliver them from the nation of Rome, from Roman captivity. Here's a guy that's going to be the hero of Israel. He's going to make all, thing, all things right. At least that's what they hoped. And so on Monday, they triumphantly hailed him, or the week leading up to the crucifixion, they triumphantly hailed him. They welcomed him in on Palm Sunday. On Tuesday, he went to the temple and he attacked the false religious systems and cleansed the temple. He threw out the money changers who made the temple into a house of robbers. 
Now it's Wednesday, and after spending the night in Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, some of his close friends, he comes back to the city with his disciples. He goes back to the temple, and he's teaching there. And he is becoming so popular, more and more popular amongst the crowds, amongst the mobs. And as he's growing more and more popular, the religious leaders are growing in their hatred of him. At this point, they're plotting his murder. They want him dead. But they are controlled by the mobs. How can you kill Jesus without having the entire crowd come after you? He had the crowds on his side, and so if they want to kill him, they have to find some way to first discredit him. And so in this section in Matthew 22, we have this series of questions where they are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is sort of like the main two political religious parties, and together they make up the Sanhedrin. They attack him with a series of questions, and they're going to try to undermine his credibility. They want him first to look bad with Rome, and so they ask him about taxes. They question him about paying taxes to Caesar, and he gives this brilliant answer, just pay to Caesar what it, you know, they bring out a coin and pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And give to God what is God. And they leave, he leaves the crowds marveling. Afterwards, the Sadducees, the other religious party, they take their shot and they question him about the future resurrection, which they don't actually believe in. And again, the crowds are marveling and astonished by his teaching. So the Pharisees now, they got rejected in the first question. They have now regrouped and they're going to give it another shot. They gather together and they send a lawyer, a lawyer. And this is a different word than Matthew normally uses. He might have used a scribe before, but here's a lawyer. He's probably one of the higher level scribes. And all lawyers, they weren't like secular lawyers. They were lawyers at religious law, interpreting the law. And so he's half theologian, half attorney. He's probably, again, one of the upper level religious experts. And he's going to question Jesus about the law. And the Pharisees believed the entire Old Testament. The Sadducees believed at least the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. And so both camps agree that, okay, Moses' writings are the word of God. And Moses was maybe the highest hero of the Old Testament of the Jewish faith. And so if they can get Jesus to disagree or attack the Mosaic law, they can discredit him. They can accuse him of apostasy or heresy or blasphemy. Moses is the great hero of Judaism, and so they want him to disagree with Moses. That's what the, the religious leaders want at this point. And so look at Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at verse 34, and we'll read up to verse 40. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees regarding the resurrection, they gathered together. They regrouped together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great or the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers without hesitation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, 
all your mind, wholeheartedly. And that's a brilliant answer because where did he get that? He got it from Moses. He quotes Moses. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He, does, he did the opposite of what they wanted him to do. And the most familiar part of the Old Testament, the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He quotes Moses. And he's speaking, remember who he's talking to, a a people, religious leaders who are very, very particular about obeying the rules. The Pharisees had the Ten Commandments, and on top of that, they added all their religious writings, all their traditions, and they ended up with about 613 laws, which correspond to 613 separate letters in the Ten Commandments. If you look at the the Ten Commandments, it's made up of 613 letters. And so the Pharisees made a law that corresponds to each letter in the Ten Commandments. That's how obsessive they were. I don't honestly know why they did that, but one law for every letter in Exodus 20 divided into two parts. 248 of those laws were positive. 365 were negative laws. They basically had one negative law for every single day of the year. And the problem with all this, if you look at the context in Matthew chapter 23, is that we know, we know the Pharisees. It's all about outward righteousness. It was all about outward righteousness. It's about appearing to be righteous. But he calls them out. Inwardly, they are full of hypocrisy and sin. It became an external show, and the religious leaders were master performers. That's all there was to it. They had rules, rituals. They looked the part, and they liked that they looked the part. But they, what they loved wasn't God. And so Jesus says, you guys clean the outside, you whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites. But the problem is on the inside. Clean the inside. And that's a work only God can do. Anyone can put on a show, but God knows our hearts. And scripture all throughout the Old Testament and the New says that religious action without love is empty and vain. God is not looking for people who go through religious ritual. He's not looking for people on the outside go through the motions. What God wants are a people who love them with their entire being. Love for God is the foundation. It's the beginning of the Christian life, and it'll be the end when we fully love him and enjoy him as we ought. And it's with all of our being. It's not just our intellect. It's not just with our theology. It's not just with our emotions. Christ wants a wholehearted here. It's an agape. It's the most noble type of love, the most pure love. It includes all the intellect, all the self-sacrifice. And the priority of our lives, the priority of our church must always be to love God. That is the greatest, it's a comparative word, that is the greatest commandment. 
And what Jesus said to the Pharisees can be just as true of us as members, true of our leaders, and especially true of me, a pastor, a public figure, where we can be so good at appearances, at externals. But what we need is the cleansing of God on the inside, a cleansing God can perform. Only God can perform. First Timothy 1.5 is a verse that, honestly, I'm going to read it, and it's a little bit haunting to me. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our charge, the end, the end of all our commands, the end of everything we're aiming for in our church is love. The goal of all preaching, the goal of all living is an inward heart transformation that leads to a self-sacrificing, wholehearted love for God, a good conscience, and sincere, unhypocritical faith. Let's again look in the Word of God. It's a mirror, and it's going to discern the thoughts and intentions of my heart and your heart, and we're coming to the Word of God. Let it examine you. How much, how much is love the motivation of my heart? How much is your relationship with the Lord the motivation for all your religious activity? Or are we just good at playing the part? It's so easy for me to trick myself, to swindle myself, to deceive myself, or I even believe in my own lies that I am more mature than I think. But if I were to look at this verse and I just strip it all away, I examine all of my activity, and I just strip it all away, Examine my life and my heart, my motivations. How much of it is out of a love for God? That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. What if I wasn't a pastor? What if I wasn't a leader? What if nothing was expected of me? And the heart is so deceitful. Who can understand it? It's so tangled. Who can untangle it? And there's so many ways that I find that I can confuse other things for loving God. How much does reputation motivate us? How much of our Christian life is driven by appearances? How much does people-pleasing motivate me, need for approval? And what if I, I'm so scared of what people may think, and so I do certain things. And then maybe I have the successful fear of man where, oh, they think highly of me. Now i got to keep doing those things. And I've just transferred it from one thing to another. 
But is there a heartbeat behind all that? Is there a heartbeat behind all that? Because anyone that knows me, my wife can know if I'm just doing things because I'm supposed to be doing things, or is there a heartbeat where I love God? And I just got to keep up the appearances. But I look at this verse, 1 Timothy 1, 5, and how much would be left if I just stripped it all away for the Lord? That's an honest question I have to examine myself. How much of our love for the church is motivated by love for God. We could be walking together for years and genuinely care for others here. We could walk with them and have a natural affection for them. We could love the church and its blessings. It's nice to have a community. I value the community. I value all of you. But we can love the church more than we love God. We can love the church instead of loving God. In John 21, Jesus is recommissioning Peter as a pastor and leader for the church. And so he asks him three times. This is the question. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love Jesus? That's the issue. That's where it starts. Do you love me, Peter? Then love the church. And he made it clear, Peter's service of the church needs to be motivated by the love of Christ. And rightfully, it's a good thing. Many people come to church looking for community. That's a good thing. I'm glad you're here. You want something deeper. You want to belong. You want to be loved. All of that is a good thing. But the love of the community should point you to the love of Christ that God has for you in the gospel. It can't end at love for community. Because if I'm honest, at that point, your love will be too weak to withstand difficult times. It won't be worth it if it's just about the people. Loving the church is not the same thing as loving God. And if I only love the church, my love for you will be way too weak. Loving God is not also, it's not a first about working for God. We can do so much in the service of God without love for God. Luke 10, 38-42, popular verse about Mary and Martha now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with so much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. Or you are distracted about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. 
We're familiar with this verse if you've grown up in the church. We know Martha loved Jesus. But at this moment, she's distracted. She's anxious. She's troubled. It's not her priority to love him. And Jesus very gently rebukes her because loving devotion to Christ can be so lost in the middle of serving him. Now, this doesn't mean that God expects expects us to do nothing but, you know, just sit on the floor and pray and enjoy him all day. That's not what this verse is saying. Mary's example isn't a call to go and live in a monastery type of life, but it's a reminder we have to keep first things first. Our priority is to love and treasure Christ. And we can be movers and shakers. We can be great visionary leaders, so capable, so competent. But what Jesus commends here is a simple childlike faith where someone just takes their Bible, they take it into the corner, they read it in the corner, they just read it on their own. They want to know Jesus. They want to know what he says. They value their relationship with him. And Jesus says that is so precious. First Corinthians 13.3, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In this section, we read it at weddings like this nice section on love, but it's actually a rebuke of the Corinthians. You can speak in tongues, the language of men and angels, but if you have not love, you are noise. You can get prophecy, direct revelation and words from God. You can be a great preacher and be nothing. You can have faith to move mountains, a great dreamer, a visionary leader, a brilliant, a thinker, but have not love, it's nothing. And you can even be martyred for your faith. You can give it all away and gain nothing. And yes, we have to manage the church. Yes, we have to be pragmatic. We have to plan. We have to do certain things. We have to put on events. But all of that always constantly needs to be reined in brought in by the love of God. None of that matters if we lose sight of what is most necessary to love God. We can even confuse hatred for sin for loving God. We can hate sin or avoid immorality for wrong reasons, reasons that actually have little to do with Christ. We don't like the guilt. We don't like the consequences. We don't like the way it makes me feel. It hurts my self-esteem. It's not about our relationship with Christ and Christ is grieved. It's not about bringing him joy when we walk with him. It's I want to live a moral life. And we can hate the consequences more than we actually hate what it does with our love relationship with Christ. But even the Pharisees hated sin. They avoided sin so much so that they could avoid Jesus. Did you get that? They avoided sin so that they could avoid Jesus. They avoided sin so that they could try to save themselves. They're lost in their own goodness. They don't need a Savior. 
And it was their damnable good works and hypocrisy in the name of God that God hated the most. And it's so easy for us to talk about avoiding sin, hating sin, fleeing from sin. Everything is a don't-do list, but do we love God? Avoiding sin is not enough. The goal is to walk closely with Christ, to draw near to Him, to feed our love for Him, and to remove anything that gets in the way of our love for Christ. In Revelation 2.2, there was a church that hated sin, they hated evil, but they're missing something. We read it at the beginning. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And think about this. This is the church of Ephesus. They stood for the gospel. They confronted evil. They tested so-called apostles, patiently endured suffering. But yet, yet, this church who started off so well, they've abandoned their first love. And that could mean they abandon their first love for Christ and for their neighbor. I don't think it has to be one or the other. They go together. And God says, gives her, he gives them a warning. God will come and take away their blessing, their witness, their light if they don't repent. And we can measure, you know, how am I doing with the Lord? By, am I hating sin? But we have to hate sin and love God. A God-loving soul is a sin-hating soul. That's from Charles Spurgeon. If you love God, you will love what He loves and hate what He hates. You will hate anything that takes away your satisfaction in Him. Even our Bible reading, we need to examine that. The Bible and reading it often is not and indicative of loving God. The goal is not to be a Bible-believing church. It's not just to know our Bibles. The goal in our Bible reading is to love God. In our reading, it's very it's just common, and I understand, I understand. It's like, I'll ask a question, like, how are you doing in your relationship with the Lord? And I think some people even get caught off by that type of language. It's very relational. How are you doing with Him? And it's a common answer I hear where it's like, you know, I read my Bible three times this week. That's good, that's good. But that's not what I was asking. How intimate with Christ is that time? How sweet is that fellowship? How much does Bible reading lead to worship? Does it lead to singing a new song? Do you meditate and pray through it until it leads to, I want to sing? Or is it just knowledge? 
it's easier to want like measurable ways we could, you know, evaluate our faith. But the deeper things of God, they're not really measurable. How do I measure? How do I quantify my love for my wife? I can't really quantify that by, oh, yeah, I went on three date nights this week. Therefore, I love her, right? That's not the goal. But there has to be something where in your Bible reading, you cherish Christ. You love Christ. You're like Mary. I just want to sit and be with Christ. The Pharisees read their Bible and knew it better than anyone. The demons have a better understanding of the Bible than we do. But does your reading of Scripture, if it's not prepared with deep meditation and prayer and then worship, we'll talk about in a couple weeks, worship through your Bible reading. Do you love Him more? Are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Are you experiencing Him? And if you say, well, I don't know, I don't know. Isn't that important? It's the greatest commandment. Again, anything done habitually needs to be self-examined. Is there not just I'm doing the right things, but again, is there a heartbeat behind it? Always come back to the love for Christ. Do I love God? Am I loving God? Am I growing in my affection for Christ? We can love the church so much, but none of it be connected to abiding in Christ. We can love the truth so much, but not be connected to God. We can love our theology. We love, like, oh, I want to have right theology. We can even be prayer warriors, and it's about prayer and not God. And have so much of it be for appearances. Is there a heartbeat? Is there a heart-to-heart relationship? God can sense the difference. People can even sense the difference when we are doing something because we have to versus we get to. The goal is never duty. It's delight. Now, in our flesh, there are times we will rely on the crutch of duty. But in health, That's not where we want to be. We don't want to rely on that crutch. We want to fight to get to delight. Not I have to love God, I get to love God. Not I have to love my wife, I get to love my wife. When we love and serve and obey God, is it because I have to or I get to? Let me, this is a quote I heard from a a pastor named Ray Ray Ortland Sr. Half-hearted Christians are the most miserable of all. They know enough to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy, be wholehearted for him, be glad in him. That's a million-dollar quote. That's an amazing quote. And the more I see, when I, I don't know how much I would have understood this years ago, but the more I see my lack of love, the more I see how true this is, the most miserable Christians are the ones who live in one foot in both worlds. We call upon the name of Christ, but we still try to find our ultimate satisfaction, security, and pleasure and fulfillment in the world. We're riding the fence. And it's not happy. You know enough like, oh, I should be doing all these things. I should be avoiding sin. I should be doing church. I should, uh, I should be loving the people. 
But you haven't gone far enough where you are happy in Christ. You are joyful in Christ. And so it's just a big burning. It's just to stay out of hell. But if you want to have full joy in Christ, it's a full yes to him, to love him wholeheartedly, which means saying no to the world, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. And in that freedom of being fully God-centered, you forget yourself, and that's freedom. It's not about loving yourself more. It's I love God so much. I'm so centered on him, and I forget myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. Of loving God and forgetting yourself. And all of this is just a reminder, honestly, when I look at the Pharisees, like, what's wrong with you? But I'm more like them than I think. I can idolize our religious systems. The blessings of the church can be turned into an idol. Our theology, our concerted theology can be an idol. The church community. All of that can be an idol that we love more than God. That's what an idol is. It's just anything you love more than God. And I don't have to look too far for me to see that I'm more like them than I think. How much do we have other gods before us? And this commandment, the great commandment, it's the positive side of the first commandment, of the Ten Commandments, you know, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the negative side of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The positive is to love God, treasure Him, enjoy Him, walk with Him, experience Him with all your being, And guard yourself against idols. Guard anything that may steal or rob you of your joy in Christ. Anything that you may love more than God. And most oftentimes, it's good things. It's God's gifts that we love more than God. Christianity can become about what we get from Christ. Not Christ himself. He's a means to a greater end. We want his gifts more than we want him And in our experience, we just know there's something wrong about that. Taking an illustration from John Piper, he points out there's a huge and important difference between enjoying a person who gives gifts and enjoying the gifts instead of the person or more than the person. Imagine, he says, man, let's say you give a beautiful diamond ring to your fiance and she spends the rest of the night following weeks showing it off, bragging about it. She takes it everywhere and she she shows everyone. But she never calls you. She never looks at you. She never takes you by the hand. She's so thrilled with the diamond, but your intent in giving her that ring was totally missed. How would you feel about that? You wanted her to look at you. You wanted her to love it. You wanted her to be thankful for it and enjoy it. You wanted her to put it on her hand, take your hand across the table, and look you in the eye and say, I would love to spend the rest of my life with you. You are 10,000 times more precious to me than even this beautiful ring. And we understand from our own experience what it means when gifts are loved more than the giver. We get that. We get it in our experience. And God can so easily, and is very subtle, be treated as a means to what we really want. We like how he makes us feel. We like that he makes us a somebody. Or he gives us something. But God's gifts are to always point back to God, the giver. In the gospel, we recognize that the gift is the giver. 
In the gospel, we recognize that the gift is the giver. God has given us himself. And before the fall, there was no confusion. There was no separation between loving God's gifts and loving God. There was no competition between God and his gifts. But our hearts were made to worship. But after the fall, now our hearts are idol factories. We constantly break the first commandment and we elevate gifts ahead of God. We have God replacements. Sinclair Ferguson, one pastor, says, the higher the position something occupies in the scale of divine blessing, the more subtle is the temptation to worship it. Isn't that true? We're not tempted to idolize golden calves. But I love my wife. I'm devoted to her. I love my children. And Jesus says, you can't love them more than you love me. You can't turn your children and their well-being into an idol. Even the gifts of the gospel. No one wants to go to hell. I don't like having a guilty feeling. I need forgiveness. I need to be free of this bad feeling. He can help me with that. We come to church like, I really need God to help me clean up my marriage. And we love what Jesus has to offer. You know, Jesus, I really need peace today. And I love Philippians 4.6. I cherish Philippians 4.6. And it tells me, rightfully, rightfully, bring your request before God. Tell him what you're anxious about. Thank him and pray and ask for his help. Tell God what I need. But it's so easy at that moment to treat God as my divine butler or my divine therapist, a genie who's supposed to grab my wish, when my father wants a relationship with me. I want your peace, God, but do I want God? Do I treasure my relationship with him? And the gospel has so many glorious, amazing benefits and blessings we get. We are forgiven. We're going to be like Christ. We will share his glory. We'll be in the kingdom. We'll sit on thrones. But the ultimate benefit is that we have Christ. Forgiveness is a gift that opens up a relationship with the gift giver. Justification has opened up access to God and to the presence of God himself. Our sins have been erased so that we can be in full relationship with him. Eternal life is good because we will forever enjoy Jesus. All his gifts lead us to him. Think about heaven. It'll have all the loved ones that passed away before us in faith. No pain, no tears, no bad weather, no trauma, no death, none of that, none of that cares of the world. But without Christ, would it be heaven to you? Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Think about those words, far better. Isn't that, that's like an amazing thing to think about. Heaven will be far better. But why will it be far better? 
Paul says, because I will be with Christ. What makes heaven heaven is that we will enjoy Christ forever and to our full capacity, our full capacity. Would you be happy in heaven if Christ was not there? Understand that the gospel, it's not, it's not just like fire insurance. In the gospel, we get God himself. The giver is a gift. We will know him and enjoy him for eternal life. God has given us a relationship with himself. And we are to love him for him, not for what he gives, but for who he is. That's constantly the call of scripture. Treasure him. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37.4. Be glad in the Lord, Psalm 32.11. In your presence there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16.11. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, Psalm 16.5. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God, Psalm 42.1-2. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched lamb. Psalm 143.6. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5.11. And in Psalm 43, hope in God, hope in God, my exceeding joy. I've been preaching that to myself, Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why is your heart in turmoil within? Hope in God. And right before it says, hope in God, in Psalm 43, he says, I will go to the altar and seek God, my exceeding joy. It's joy of joys, the source of all joys, my true joy, my ultimate satisfaction. Hope in him. He is a person, not an idea, not an action, not a thing. Hope in this person. Take joy in God. Be glad in God. Love God. That's what it means to love him, to worship him, to enjoy him above all persons. Treasure him above all treasures. We're so prone to idolize his gifts, the dangers of our lusts, our appetites, our desires. But is there something I desire on earth? And is that desire connected to a desire for God? Are you able to look at everything good that God has given you and see through it to him as a giver of all good gifts? Not just say, I thank you, God, but I love you, God, more than I love this gift. Are you able to love God even when his blessings are taken away? Are you able to love God enough to suffer for him? Is he worthy of our suffering? Is Christ worthy? Do you love him enough where you will suffer for him? Where Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 3, he ends, if, even if there's no grapes, there's no livestock, even if everything else fades, I will rejoice in God, my God and my salvation. 
Even if I have nothing else, even if things are going wrong with church or with family or with school or with work, I have God as my exceeding joy. That's the greatest test of your love for Christ. When he brings something into your life, he does not, it's not the way you want it to go. Will you still treasure God or will you resent him? Will you stop seeking him? Is it not worth it for you at that point to be a Christian? Ask yourself that question. Do I love him enough where I will suffer for him? Then he is your joy. His gifts are good. But we are to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the big question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? Can we just choose to love God that way? Can I just decide one day I'm going to stop hating him, I'm going to stop rejecting him, and start loving him and create that type of love? Can I will myself to love him this way? We can't create love. We can't create this type of love. We can't make ourselves worshipful. It has to happen when we see a greater beauty that expels and removes the idols of the heart. There has to be something you see that rearranges the motivational structures of your hearts. It has to happen from the inside out where you see something that is glorious and that beauty satisfies you where you don't need the other thing anymore. That's why just hating sin is not enough. That won't be able to motivate you enough to just stay away from sin because you're not replacing it. You're not replacing the hole in your heart with something greater. An illustration I got years ago from a pastor named Tim Keller, and it helped me understand this concept of of needing to see beauty and glory. Imagine a woman who has inherited a piece of jewelry from her, her mom who's now passed away. Let's say it's a bracelet. Okay? It's been around for years, but nobody knows where it's from, how much it's worth. And so one day this woman decides, I'm going to take it and get it appraised. I want to see what it's worth. And she takes it to the jeweler. The jeweler takes the piece of jewelry. She takes out that little, that little eye thing, the little lens, and starts to stare into this piece of jewelry. And as the jeweler is staring into this piece of jewelry, she notices colors, she notices the beauty, she notices how all the different facets reflect the light. And soon, the jeweler, her heart is pumping. Her heart is beating, it's pounding. She's breathing hard. Her mind is is running wild. Why? Because she's realizing She's realizing that this is an ancient piece of jewelry that is absolutely precious. Nobody can make jewelry like this anymore. 
And the reason she's suddenly engaged is because she realizes the worth, the true worth of what she has in her hand. It's worth more than all the jewels in her shop, all the jewels all put together. This is worth more. Once she saw the great value of the diamond or this jewel, her heart, her mind, her body were moved. And the woman who brought the piece of jewelry in, she, when she heard this, she realized she hadn't been living the way she ought to have been living. She didn't see the value of it, and therefore nothing was changed. But once she saw its great and precious worth, she no longer lived as she did before. Her life was forever changed. That is the philosophy of preaching. That is why you read your Bible. You need to look through the lens of the gospel, not just to see the gospel, but through the gospel to see the beauty of God, the majesty, the greatness, the love of Christ. And that glory expels the idols of your heart. It gets you to move. Behold his glory. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I quote this verse a lot because it really undergirds so much of the philosophy of why we do what we do. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan wants us to blind, be blind. And so we pray, God, let the light shine in our hearts. And as we behold his glory, 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It all starts by staring through the lens of the gospel and seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One of the mistakes I made early on in my ministry is like always oh, practical sermons, practical sermons, but they weren't theological. Practical sermons on how to do this, how to do that, how to pray, how to, how to read the Bible. That doesn't change hearts. We, we can have 10 ways I could be a good, 10 tips on how to be a good dad. How to, how to go and evangelize. Ten ways to do that. But undergirding all of that needs to be, look at the glory of God in Christ. And love Him more. And you will love your wife more. Are you trying to live the Christian life without staring into the diamond or into the piece of jewelry? Are you trying to be moved, your heart changed? I'm trying to live a life of obedience without seeing glory. It doesn't work. It's miserable. Look at the gospel and see God's love for you. He didn't love us half 
heartedly. He loved us with all his heart. He loved us till the end. He loved us enough to suffer for us. 1 John 4 9 says, In this the love of God has made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. And so be relieved of that burden of, I got I to gotta create this love. I got to create this love. No. First, we rest in God loving us. And we see the glory of who he is. He loved us and we love him as a result. And this is love. That the lawbreaker, Sinclair Ferguson says, the, law the lawmaker became the lawkeeper and then took our place in condemnation as if he were the lawbreaker. In him, the propitiation or the requirements of the law have been met. They've been fulfilled. They've been obeyed. And all the penalties have now been finally paid. And he's given us his righteous record. He's imputed it to us so that we're not just not guilty. We are righteous. And we're not just righteous. We are sons and daughters of God adopted into his family. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when the gospel comes into your life, he pours the love of Christ into our hearts so that we fall in love with Jesus. A friend, a savior, a father who is our all-satisfying treasure. In the gospel, we get God. We get Jesus. It's not about heaven. It's about God. In all we do, our prayers, our meetings... It's not prayer that powers our church. It's God who powers our church. It's not just reading the Bible. I want God. I want to know him and I want to love him. But his love must first come to us. And if it's going to come to us, it will flow from us. Power must come to us if power is going to come from us. That's preaching, but that's the entire Christian life. This is why we love our neighbor, because we are loved by Christ. This is why we hate sin, because we are loved by Christ. This is why we serve him, because we are loved by Christ. And this is why we obey him, because we love him. If you love me, you will obey me, he says. We obey him because we love him. Our love for him is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Love is first. Commandment keeping follows. Loving God is first. And then we'll love our kids more, our wives more, our church more. We'll hate sin more. We'll serve him, not because we have to, but because we get to. If you're a Christian, the love of God is important to your heart. You love God, but we also know we don't love him as we ought, right? There's a constant battle in the flesh. And if you're far from Christ, it's not because he moved away from you. It's because you moved away from him. And so come back, Revelation 2, 2. Repent. Abide in him. Love him wholeheartedly. And as Christians, we don't love him as we ought, but we long to love him more. 
And so meditate on his love and glory. Trust in his power. Seek to have deeper fellowship with him. Do all you can do to feed your love for Christ. Fight to remain in his love. And if we remain in his love, we will obey him from the heart. If you're not a Christian, you don't love God. You have rejected him. And Romans 5 says you are his enemy. But even while you are his enemy, and even when you don't love him, he loves you. And he pursues you. And he's calling you. He offers you, out of his love, forgiveness for rejecting him and not loving him. And if you repent of your sins and trust in him, he will forgive you and he will enable you by his spirit to love him. We, he invites you, the king invites you to rest in him who died on the cross. Receive his love, receive him. Know him. And he'll be with you. Church, our priority, our priority is to love Christ with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything we do has to have that as our ultimate aim. In order to that, do that, we don't need an external list of do-nots. We need to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Closing with this hymn, it says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son, the aching soul again made whole and priceless part in one. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies a parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretch from sky to sky. Let's pray. I'm going to give us a moment just to pray. And again, we want to, we want to just constantly pray and Philippians 1.9 talks about how we pray that the Spirit would give us more and more, abounding more and more in love. And so let's pray for that. I'm going to read for us from Ephesians. Chapter 1, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
verse 14th, chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted, being grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, that's our prayer, that your spirit would open up our eyes. Your spirit would free us, take away our blindness, to see your glory, the riches of our inheritance, your amazing love. And so I pray that for any that may not know you, that you would take away their blindness and they would see your glory and they would be able to sing amazing grace. Pray that for those that love you, but we don't love you as we ought, that you would draw us near to you, that we would rest in you. We would know it's not because of the strength of our love or our faith, but it's the strength of your love towards us. May that give us freedom, give us joy. So make us a church that is joyful in Christ, that loves Christ, that treasures Christ. May you be our all-satisfying treasure. That's a miracle. And so we pray that you do that miracle in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.